Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Justice Cote's competence as a litigator was recognized on many occasions, including Best Lawyers of Canada, the Lexpert American Lawyer Guide to the Leading 500 Lawyers in Canada, Chambers Global Guide to the World's Leading Business Lawyers, Lexpert, in which Justice Cote was named as a feature article on Canada's 25 Best Lawyers. She taught evidence and litigation at L'École Bureau du Québec, she has also contributed for many years to the organization of the annual Coup de Guerin Trial Advocacy Competition, a provincial competition that leads to participation in the Sopinka Cup. Finally, she has given many lectures relating to various areas of the law. Justice Cote has been a member of the Board of Directors of the Foundation. Justice Cote received the Advocacy Emeritus Distinction from the Bureau du Quebec in 2011. And of course, she's been a fellow of the American College Trial Lawyers since 2005. Welcome, Justice Cote. How are you today? Good morning. I'm very well today after a very busy week. What was your week like? It was our first sitting week of the fall 2023. It was very exciting, but uh, very busy. Well, thank you very much for taking time with us today. I really do appreciate it. As I mentioned in your bio, you were the first woman appointed to the Canadian Supreme Court directly from private practice. Did you know you were in consideration? I knew only six days before the announcement of the appointment because at the time of my appointment, contrary to today, there was no formal process to appoint a judge to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, since Mr. Trudeau had been elected, they put in place a formal process in 20, 2016. And now somebody, a lawyer or a judge of a lower court who wants to be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada has to file an application. And there is a committee reviewing the applications, interviewing the candidates and making a recommendation to the prime minister. But in my case, in 2014, we did not have such a process. In fact, I received a phone call six days before to ask me if I was aware that my name was on a shortlist. And of course, they did not tell me what the shortlist was about. So I said, oh, I'm very happy to be on a shortlist because I thought that the Department of Justice was calling me to hire me on a file. And finally, I said, I asked, what is the file? And they said, this is not a shortlist for a file. It is the shortlist for the Supreme Court of Canada. And I said, this must be a mistake. I never <laughs> asked to be a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. And I'm sure it, it is a mistake and you're calling the wrong person. But finally, they were not calling. They wanted to speak to me and to know my interest. I did not have a lot of time to think about this. I only had like 24 hours. But when you are asked to sit on the Quebec court of your country, let's say that you don't have so many options but to say yes. A few days after, the same gentleman called me back and said, we know a lot of things about you, but there's something we don't know yet. And I said, how can I help you? And they said, the Prime Minister of Canada wants to know if you will take his phone call tomorrow. And then I said, oh, I guess if the Prime Minister wants to call me, it is not to tell me that I'm not on the shortlist anymore. And the gentleman said, indeed, you will be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada tomorrow. 
The following day, the prime minister called me and, and said something like, I understand that uh, given the fact that you took my call, you accept the appointment. And I said, I'll be honored to serve my country this way. Absolutely. Did you, I imagine that in that time frame between learning that you were being considered and having to make that decision, you weren't able to really speak with anyone outside your immediate family. Yeah, I was allowed to speak only to my companion, who is also a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers, and who was, in fact, the first law clerk of the Supreme Court of Canada in 1967. When I told him that I had received that phone call and that I was maybe thinking of refusing, of course, he asked me if I had lost my mind. Because <laughs> in his view, it is good to have somebody coming from private practice to sit on the Supreme Court of Canada instead of having only judges uh, from lower courts. What drove his advice to me was that somebody coming from private practice is bringing a different perspective. And also, uh, of course, I did not accept because of what my compa companion was uh, thinking. For me, it was a way to do my public service because since the beginning of my career, I had always been for 34 years in the private sector. To me, I said I was very lucky in my career, and it was the way to give back, to give back that privilege or that chance. Well, I, I love that story. It is so inspirational for, you know, lawyers that work hard their entire career and don't put themselves out there to look for these honors, but are noticed anyway. I, I really admire that, just as I really do. How was it, how was that transition from private practice to being a jurist? Because I know I've read quite a bit of your story and some of the cases that you worked on, and I could tell that you did very much enjoy what you, what you did. So how was it that you can make that transition? I would say that it was not an easy transition. As I said, when you have to file an application to be appointed to such a position, you have time to think and to, your, to set your mind to, to this. But in my case, I did not have time. And in fact, I was involved in a very big trial, which I, I was coming to an end. In fact, ended three days after my appointment and which lasted for two years and a half plus all the other files. And I was a very happy litigator in the sense that for me to do a trial was a real pleasure. Of course, it was a lot of work, a lot of stress too, but it was a real pleasure. So I had to, and I had a lot of clients who over the years became my friends and I've been there. They were calling me their trusted advisor for so many years in their business and all of that. For me, it took time. It was like a, a death. I was very proud, don't get me wrong, I was very proud to become a justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. And I felt privileged to have this immense responsibility. And in fact, I felt very humble to, toward this. But for me, it took me a couple of months to adapt because I had to say goodbye to my clients. I had four days to do that. I had, I had to move to Ottawa because my practice was mainly in Montreal, although I was doing a lot of file with our Toronto office. And so I had to move to Ottawa when my companion was continuing to work in Montreal. So it was an adaptation. And to arrive here with eight colleagues, I knew some of them from before, but some of them I did not know at all, except by reputation. And to 
trust the fence because for 34 years I was on the other side of the room and suddenly to be on this side of the room, you don't adapt overnight. It took me a couple of months, but I must say that I'm very pleased to have gone through that adaptation and to be here. I'm beginning my 10th year this fall, so time flies. It does, and congratulations for that. What are some of the skills that you learned and perfected as a trial lawyer that help you be a good jurist? Uh, You know what? I know that maybe it it can seem like a cliche, but I always insisted, I always focused when I was a litigator on being prepared. Because I always said advocacy, it's not just a science or just an art. And even if you can be very uh, talented, if you are not prepared, you're not going to be uh, a very successful uh, advocate. For me, when I was a litigator, preparation was just essential. And that helped me a lot when I became a justice of the Supreme Court here, because the workload is easy. And if you want to do your job properly, you have to work very hard. So for that, the way I was handling my practice as a litigator helped me a lot when I joined the court here. The... One of, the, one of the things that I read in preparation for our interview, Justice, was an article from the American College of Trial Lawyers magazine, The Journal. It was written in 2015, not too long after you'd been appointed to the court, and it was remarks that you gave at the Justice John Sopinka trial competition to younger lawyers and the participants in that. And as I said, this was shortly after you became a justice of the Canadian Supreme Court. And you, you wrote something that I thought was very, a very beautiful sentence. And I, I want to find it. And this, you wrote this about becoming a judge, being a judge. You say, at times, it feels like an invitation to shed the mortal coil and head into a soft, ethereal light of pure law. And I thought that was a beautiful sentence. And it also, I think, gave me this vision of what could be so wonderful about being a judge, especially on the apex court. Have you, has that feeling grown in the years since you made it? Yes, because, of course, when you are appointed, you say, oh, this is quite a privilege. But, of course, with the passage of years and with the type of files on which I sat, of course, that feeling became more and more uh, present there. That article, I remember that article, which was uh, I wrote, and it was also published in the Advocates Journal in Canada, and uh, I was speaking to students, to the competitors. And but since that time, my feeling has just grown, and I'm, uh, it's, it has been a, so far a fabulous experience. How how did you change your mindset from an advocate? for your client, a trusted advisor, as you've mentioned, to more of a neutral jurist. How was that transition? That was something too, because, but as a litigator, of course, I was advancing the position of my client. Some people were saying that I was quite an aggressive lawyer, depending on the definition you put on aggressive, but let's say that I was known to stick to my guns. But in doing that, in advancing the position of my client, I never forgot the position of the other side because, of course, when I was discussing strategy with my clients, 
I was also analyzing the position of the other side and, and I was of the view many times, I said the other side that they are very well prepared too and they have a strong arguments too. I do have strong arguments, but they do. As a litigator, I was not ignoring the other side. I, but of course, although I, it would have been irresponsible for me to ignore their position, I was putting the emphasis, of course, on the position of my clients. As a judge, of course, you cannot do that. You have to look at both positions or if there are more than two parties, and then you have to decide based on your analysis of the file, and you have, the, you have a duty of impartiality. It was not complicated for me to, to do that, and because in my life as a lawyer, I, I did not act only for plaintiffs or only for defendants. So I really had the general litigation practice. So for sometimes I was acting for a plaintiff, other times for a defendant, sometimes for poor clients, eligible to legal aid, other times for, let's say, richer clients. I was a barrister, essentially. So for me, it was not dif that difficult to consider both sides and to say, what should be the result here based on the law, based on the evidence in the file. It was quite easy that part, although what was more difficult was if you read some articles on me, you will see, oh, Justice Cote began at the Supreme Court of Canada in writing many dissenting opinions. What was more difficult was that conversation with my colleagues, because when we hear a case, after we discuss how it should be decided, and for people who were asking me, oh, was it difficult to stop being a litigator? I said, I never stopped, I think, being a litigator, not with the parties before us, but with my colleagues, because of course, we are nine. And for me, it's not unusual for nine justices not to agree, because if the nine of us would always be in agreement, there will be a problem. As a Canadian citizen, I will be very concerned if my Supreme Court would always be unanimous on such important questions, which very often divide the Canadian society. And that part of me, that part of the litigator in me, I think never left me at the beginning because I was arguing with my colleagues, trying to convince them of my position. And some people will say, oh, she lost many times because it's true that my first two, three, four years, I was writing more dissenting opinions than majority opinions. But it was it just happened like that. That does bring up one of my topics because there was an article written, it was in 2019, and it was an analysis of your dissents and your rate of dissent and percentages historically, and then with your court, which I can tell by your face you're familiar with. And yeah. Which, frankly, I read the article, and I, I'll tell you, I didn't think it was terribly fair. Just my opinion. But I agree with you. <laughs> I thought you might. And I think only to the extent that it projected out what it meant and what your motives were, which I didn't think was particularly fair or appropriate for the article. But, that's, but it does bring up this idea that you've mentioned, which is you really, you're not there just to agree with everyone because law is evolving and law is dynamic. So when you find yourself in discussions with your colleagues, do you keep that in mind? I keep that in mind. To give you an example, as I said, to me, uh, of course, when we can be unanimous, we, we don't begin to work on a file in saying, oh, we have to be unanimous. It does not work like this. 
Of course, it happens in some cases that there is full unanimity. And in other cases, it's easier to make some compromises because I mean it on the legal reasoning, because it does not have an impact on the outcome of the case. But to me, it's, it's, not, it's normal to have differences of opinion. Let's say that we have a case involving statutory interpretation of a specific provision, for instance, of the Canadian Criminal Code. And we have that type of case quite often. It's clear that we may have different opinions about the way to interpret that statutory provision. And not because we have, a, we have no bias at all. With one justice may read the provision one way, and the other justice may read the same provision another way. And then we look at for extrinsic evidence to see if there is something in that to back up your position. And you may end up to have a different view about that statutory interpretation. And to me, it's not unusual. And the Supreme Court is there to tell what the law should be, how the law should evolve. Here in Canada, we have a bi-juridical system. We have the common law system, but we also have the civil law system because of the province of Quebec. And the common law, it's known that common law is evolving incrementally. And, and of course, in this incremental evolution, it's clear that some judges may have different opinions than others. And it does not mean because we have a preconceived opinion, but the nine of us, we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences. And because justice is not decided by artificial intelligence, but by human beings, the inevitable outcome will be that in some or many cases, you will have differences of opinions. And I think it is very healthy, and particularly here in Canada, and in the States too. Some Supreme Courts in the world, because sometimes we have exchanges with them, they don't have the right to express a dissenting opinion. Of course, in their internal discussions, protected by secrecy, they can express different views. But when the decision is released, it is a unanimous decision because this is their system. But in our tradition, and it is the same in the U.S., we have the right to express different views. And I think it is very healthy. And it is healthy not only for the evolution of the justice, but also for the parties. When you are before a court, you want to win your case. But of course, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. Let's say that the person who loses the case sees that the Supreme Court has been unanimous in dismissing their position. I think, and I remember when I was a lawyer and I had to call a client to announce to my client that we lost, it was always good when I was in a position to tell the client, yeah, we lost, but there were some judges in our favor. There were some judges who were of the view that our position should be the one to be adopted. For me, when I saw this article, and this, I'm not very, I don't really care about the statistics. I can tell you about when some people, they say, oh, Cote has written 5% of dissenting opinions last year. Or, I don't really care about that, the statistics, because I don't do my job to please people, and I don't try to please people. I do my job based on my knowledge of the law, my preparation, and, and at the end, I say my analysis brings me there, and that's it, dissent or majority. And I really think that's what the expectation is and what I would imagine everyone would hope of right. any judge, particularly yeah. 
a judge on the Supreme Court. To me, independence of the judiciary is the basis of a democratic society. And this is why I say I like our justice system and that possibility to express different views, because to me, this is the best guarantee of a democratic society. And it shows the independence of the judiciary. And we have decisions of our court here many, many years ago discussing that concept of independence of the judiciary. And not only are you independent from pressure from third parties, from the public, from the government, we are really an independent power, but also we are independent from, from our, our colleagues. And this is very important, I think. And I think that in order to maintain the public confidence, the public trust in the justice system, we have to show that we really mean it when we are talking about judicial independence and impartiality. And it's, it's often true throughout history that a dissent one year becomes the majority opinion in the future. It may happen, and I'm not going to say that it happens all the time. I would, I would not be, it won't be honest for me to say that. But in some instances, it becomes the, the opinion of the future. And one example I give quite often when I give conferences to lawyers or other groups, it is the medical assistance in dying. Many years ago, in 1993, this court decided that medical assistance in dying was not possible, was a crime and should not be permitted in Canada. And 22 years later, uh, in 2015, and in 1993, when it was considered a crime, there were a few judges on the court who had written a dissenting opinion, including Justice McLaughlin, who was not the chief justice at the time, but became the chief later. And you see, 22 years later, it became a unanimous court decided that medical assistance in dying was not a crime anymore because it was going against the Charter of uh, Freedoms in Canada. You see that dissenting opinions at that time became the unanimous decision of the court 22 years later. And this is the example I give, but we have other cases where it was the case. But even if the dissenting opinion does not become the majority, there are a lot of benefits to dissenting opinions. And I mentioned one, the, the fact that you can Parties, when they see that uh, there is a majority and a dissenting opinion, they see that we did not leave any stone unturned, if I may say, because every argument w was considered. And also the fact that we, we, we write a dissenting opinion, it helps the majority to make their reason stronger because what the public see, sees at the end is the final set of reasons. But the final set of reasons was not like that at the beginning. The, the fact that you have some dissenting judges, it also forces the majority to make their reasons stronger. And, and also, when the court is divided, maybe it is, a, I would say, a message that the law on this issue is not fixed forever. It may happen. Of course, the law is not going to be changed two years after we have released a decision. It takes more than that to overturn a precedent of the court. But it shows that, let's say that we have a decision 5-4. Of course, the law is what the five has written, have written. But it shows that this is not something which is crystallized for the next 50 years. And may I ask you some procedural questions about the discussions that you have with your colleagues? How is it determined who will write 
the majority opinion? How are those assignments made? It is the prerogative of the Chief Justice to make those decisions, but the way it works after each case we hear, we have our post-hearing conference where the Chief Justice will ask each of us for his or her opinion. And quite often we can see how we would decide what would be the result. Sometimes we don't have all the elements of the reasoning because we can say for the following reasons, but I need to check this and this. So this is a round table. At the end of that conversation, we know if the court will be unanimous or divided. Let's say that we see that we are going to be divided, but we see who will be in the majority. Then the chief justice will ask uh, who would be interested in writing the reasons for the majority. Because it does not mean that because you are in the majority that you are necessarily interested in writing. But I must say here that all my colleagues, we are very keen in writing and many of us we raise our hand to say, oh, I would be interested. And at the end of the two weeks, because we sit two consecutive weeks every month, like we sat this week and we are going to sit next week. So at the end of the second week, the Chief Justice knows who will be, who is in the majority or not for the two weeks, who raised his or her hand. And we, have, we can raise our hand on many cases. Uh, and he will decide at the end of the two weeks who should write the reasons for the majority. And he will circulate a memo to that effect. And of course, the Chief Justice tries to be fair in his assignment of the work. He tries to maintain the right balance among the colleagues. And as for the dissenters, either one dissenter or many dissenters, because sometimes we are two or three dissenters, then we decide among ourselves who is going to write the dissenting reasons. And so this is how it is decided. So when you see somebody writing them for the majority, it is because the Chief Justice has decided that way. And he sees that he tries to maintain a fair balance, but he can see who is more interested by this case, the level of preparation, although we are all very well prepared, and then he makes his decision. How often, if at all, does oral argument come into play in your decision making? I can only speak for myself on that and not for my colleagues, but I of course, when I arrive to the hearing, I have read everything and I'm very well prepared. And of course, I have a preliminary opinion. I'm not going to say that I'm arriving with an empty mind when we begin the hearing, but I keep an open mind. And I must say, I would say that between 25 and 30% of the time, oral submissions either made me change my mind about the outcome, or help me to, I would say, streamline my legal reasoning. Because I'm of the, I ask many questions during the hearing. In fact, we all ask questions and we always interrupt lawyers. And this is very challenging for lawyers to argue before our court because after their opening, sometimes they don't even have the time to finalize their opening statement. And, but I prefer to ask a question when I'm troubled by one aspect. I prefer to ask the question to the lawyer instead of thinking about it and at the end of the day may, to make my decision without knowing what the lawyer would have answered to the question. But me, I'm very, oral submissions for me, it's extremely important. Maybe it's because of my background as a litigator. To give you an example, when we sit, we all have a computer in front of us, a laptop. And of course, we can communicate with our law clerks during the hearing because we have a law clerk assigned to each file for each judge and they are all sitting in the courtroom. If somebody says something, 
and you want to check with your clerk, you can write to your clerk during uh, the oral submissions. But I never do it because I say the appellant has 60 minutes, the respondent has 60 minutes. It's not very long because if you consider all the time we take for our questions, and if I spend my time writing to my clerks, I want to concentrate on what the lawyers are saying, of course, on the questions and the answers given. I never write uh, to my law clerks during the hearing because for me, I like to hear everything in the oral argument and I don't want to miss a word. This is why I'm fully concentrated on that. And for me, it is extremely important, although it does not change the result. As I said, for me, I would say 25 to 30 percent. I think that's, as I've never had the honor or privilege of arguing in the Supreme Court, but I have had other appellate arguments. And I think that's encouraging to think that it even could be that high. I think some of us go into it thinking, well, it's it's done on the briefs and all the facts are right there and the law is right there. I'm actually encouraged by that. Yeah, I'm speaking for myself only because maybe of my background. And of course, your written material has to be quite good because in order to keep our interest, when you have a long fact, when I give some conferences to lawyers, I give them tips for the written advocacy and the oral advocacy. And if you have a long fact and you repeat always the same thing, then the judge will be some sort of irritated. But your written material has to be very good but the oral submissions are very important. I'm just going to give an example. We have the appellant factum, and of course the respondent files his or her factum too, but the, resp the respondent has the opportunity to answer the appellant's factum, but the appellant does not respond to the respondent factum. One of my tips I always say to the appellant, please use your oral submission time not to read your factum. We have already read it but to answer to the points raised by the respondent in their factum. For me, for instance, oral advocacy and the oral uh, submissions are very important for that. This is just an example to give the opportunity to the appellant to respond to the respondent's factum. Of course, some people can say there is a right of reply at the end of the oral submissions, but the right of reply is only five minutes. You cannot do a lot in five minutes. So for me, it is very important. The article I mentioned earlier that you wrote for the PINCA oral advocacy, you gave 10 tips to yeah. lawyers. Yeah. And I, as you were speaking, I was reminded that you said, answer the question, and you made that point twice. <laughs> and I think I said the first time, answer the damn question. <laughs> yes, you did. I'm going to let you say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I said that because... I said something, answer the damn question. Don't answer the question you would have loved the judge to ask you. Ha answer the question that the judge is asking you now. Usually we have experienced lawyers before our court, but sometimes we have uh, younger lawyers with uh, less experience. And anyway, you have to do your first time. So the first time you argue a case before our court, it's a lot of stress. And I understand that. And so it may happen that the judge will ask a question and the lawyer will say, oh, can I respond later? Because it's later in my plan of argument. For a young lawyer, it's perfectly understandable. But for an experienced lawyer, answer the question now. And I always say, answer now, because if you don't answer now, the only thing this judge will think about 
when you continue your, with your oral submission is, is that question. So I said, answer now. And if you are very well prepared, you can go back and forth on, in your plan, with your plan of argument, even if you're obliged because of a question to jump to your third point earlier in the process, you have to do it. And, and I always say to the lawyers, to don't be afraid if you get questions. It's better if you get questions. It means that the judge is engaged, the judge is interested. And a question is, I, when I was a litigator, I was seeing a question as a window about what the judge is thinking. When I was a young lawyer, I was very afraid with questions because my first reaction was, oh, oh my God, I'm going to lose my case if the judge is asking those questions. But with the experience, I realized it was not the case. It was an engaged judge who wanted to have the answers now. And I say too, that arguing oral advocacy is not a lecture. It's not to read your written material. It is a conversation with the bench, especially at an appellate court level or at the Supreme Court level. It's really a conversation with the bench because many justices ask questions and you have to be part of that conversation. And this is why I say again, preparation is so important and you have to know everything in your file. I watched one webcast of an oral argument from earlier this year, and it involved a criminal case. It was the Metzger case. And, yeah. and you were... I was presiding, I think. Huh? Yes, ma'am. You were presiding yes. and you had four colleagues. And I wondered, is there a rule with respect to whether there are five sitting judges or all nine? No, it's a, we can sit, we can be from five to nine. The minimum is five. And that Metzger case was an appeal as of right. So appeals as of right are usually heard on Friday morning. And most of the time, but sometimes we can sit seven, but most of the time five justices sit. Like this morning, they are hearing, my, some of my colleagues are hearing an appeal as of right. And this is why I was able to book this appointment with you because I was not on the panel of five this morning. And, but we can be five, seven, or nine. We can be six or eight, too, but we avoid that because we don't want to have a deadline in the outcome. And so that case was uh, appeal as of right, and I was presiding because uh, who presides, it is the, more, the most senior member, the most senior justices on the panel is asked to preside over the case. And I noticed that you gave the, the lawyer, the first lawyer speaking, an entire three and a half minutes before your first question. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, because I'm, I'm a believer in opening statements. I think, and sometimes I say we should have a rule, uh, but we don't have a, <clears throat> a specific rule, I will say. But for me, the first two or three minutes are essential for the person in front of us for two things. First of all, it, it's, as I said, to argue a case before us, it's very stressful. So those two or three minutes give the opportunity to the lawyer to be on his or her feet and to feel better. And the second thing, during those two or three minutes, during I'm interested in the opening statement because I want to know the roadmap that the lawyer is going to follow during the argument. It is important for me to know the roadmap because I always have a list of questions prepared. Sometimes I go through it, other times the questions come naturally. But if, for instance, I'm more concerned with the third point of the, of the argument, 
I like to know the roadmap because I'm not going to interrupt the lawyer regarding his first point or his second point. And so to me, it's important to have that. And sometimes I say to my colleagues, hey, don't interrupt the lawyers so early in the process. Although in a case, a recent case, I, I'm the one who I think asked the question after a minute and a half. And I said, I apologize for doing that. But, but it means that we are quite engaged when we hear cases. And in that case, I, I did notice that there were questions from all the, all the justices to both parties. And after about, it seemed about an hour, you all, the, the ben, you all left the bench and then came back. And I couldn't tell if that was time-lapsed or if, because it was all part of the same webcast and you came back with your decision. With the decision, but I think we said that with reasons to follow, if I remember correctly. We came with the, the decision, the, what we call the judgment, but we said reasons will follow, if I remember correctly. And then I did not know how long it took for the reasons to go out, but to be released. But sometimes we do that because those appeals as, as of right are in criminal matters. And, and sometimes there is some sort of an urgent question when there is a question for a new trial or something like that, or when somebody is detained and that uh, the, 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 the result is that this person should not be detained anymore. But we have reasons. Uh, there is a motivation when we decide to release the judgment from the bench, which reasons to follow it is because it's something which is quite urgent. And this is why we do that. Other times in appeals as a right, we say we decide from, we give the, reason, the, the, the decision from the bench and we give very short reasons. But in the case you referred to, we, I think we took a couple of weeks to, to, to draft our reasons. And I think you had a dissent in that case. And just by way of background, this was a, Metzger was a gentleman who was accused of a robbery. And there were two, uh, I think, pieces of evidence in dispute. The first was that there was DNA evidence on a cigarette, but in a truck. And also that one of the eyewitnesses had heard the name Metzger. A couple of questions that you had asked had regarded um, what appeared to me to, to be um, how much deference should be given to the trial court, the, the true trier of fact. In this case, it was judge tried. Um, and I think that was the basis of your dissent in that matter, which is um, that the trial court had been uh, the one receiving all the evidence and had made a reasonable decision. Um, and, and I wondered whether, based on your extensive experience as a trial lawyer, that kind of comes into play when you have questions about this. Of course, I, because as a trial lawyer for so many years, and I was also doing appellate work in my trials, but it's clear that when you are in a trial for a few days or a few weeks, when you just read the transcript, it does not give you the real flavor of what is going on in the courtroom. The trial judge is there. I'm not saying that the trial judge, they don't make mistakes, but they are there. They listen, they hear the evidence, they see the witnesses, they are able to make up their mind about, and this is why they come to those factual findings. And we have rules in, in our law that an appellate court, either a court of appeal or the Supreme Court of Canada, it's even worse at the Supreme Court of Canada, 
we should not intervene with finding about findings of facts. We should not change the findings of fact of the trial judge without the demonstration of a palpable and overriding error. And in that case, I don't recall all the details, but when you have there a finding of fact, you have to pay difference to that finding of fact, unless, as I say, and the threshold is quite high to show that this finding of fact should not be considered because there was an overriding and palpable error, an error which had an impact on the result. We have that rule. And at the Supreme Court, it's even more difficult to overturn findings of fact because we are not the court to correct errors. I mean errors on the facts. And even error of, errors of law sometimes. When the law is clear, when we have released a decision saying the law should be the following in this area, here is the framework of analysis. And then let's say that a trial judge and an appellate court, they don't follow, they, they, they say the framework is that, but they, they apply the framework wrongly. The Supreme Court of Canada is not going to grant leave to correct the, those errors. We grant leave, the, the granting leave is the basis, the, the basis of our jurisdiction. We have some appeals as of right. We have some references about the constitutionality of legislation, for instance, but our jurisdiction is mainly leaves that we grant. And we will grant leaves only when it is a question of public importance and when there is, for instance, a difference of view between different appellate courts in our country about a question of law, so we will hear the case. But so in, the, in that case, an appeal as of right, we did not have the choice but to hear the appeal. But the same rule apply. I mean that we have to pay to show difference to the findings of fact of the trial judges. And, and as I said, this is understandable because they see the witnesses, they have sometimes spent weeks in, court, in the courtroom with the witnesses. And so this is, this is for me, this is a good rule. Let's, let's back up. So I know that your mother was a teacher and your father was she wanted, a She wanted to be a teacher. <laughs> okay. I read that your, so your mother wanted to be a teacher. Your father was a fisherman? At the beginning, yes. And after that, he became a, a businessman. He became a, a constructor. But at the beginning, he was a fisherman. And you grew up in Gaspé Peninsula. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I read that you knew you wanted to be a lawyer at a pretty young age. Where did it come from? I wanted to, I knew at the age of 10 or 11 that I wanted to study law. It came because I was living in a very small village. I'm coming from very, I would say, humble origins. A very small village, and we had a couple of newspapers, not a lot, because it's, a, it's quite far. And those newspapers were reporting criminal cases argued in Montreal. And I was very impressed by that. I was reading that and about the lawyers, and I said, oh, I would like to become a lawyer. But my problem at the time was that I was very shy, and I, I had difficulty speaking in public. When I had to present something at school, I was becoming like red and I was very nervous. So I said, I'm going to study law, but I'm not going to be a litigator. I will practice law, but in another way. But after my first year at university, my professors said to me, hey, Suzanne, you cannot just limit yourself. You have to be a litigator. So I said, yes, but I'm very shy. They said, we'll work on this. And this is how I 
decided. But I knew very early I wanted to study law because of that interest in those criminal cases that I was able to read in the newspaper. And you finished studying law and then did move back to Gaspé? Yes. And tell us about that. I started my practice there. In fact, I was supposed to just do my articling period of six months there because I had studied in Quebec City and I love Quebec City and I still love Quebec City. So my goal was to work in Quebec City and I had some offers there. But I came back to the Gaspé to do my articling period because when I was studying law, during the summer, I was working in a law firm there. And and my parents uh, were very proud uh, of me coming back to the Gaspé because I was the first woman uh, to become a lawyer in the Gaspé Peninsula. So I said to please my parents, I will uh, go back for six months and then I will move to Quebec City. And then, but I stayed almost eight years because one of my boss was appointed to a governmental position and I decided to buy half of the firm at that time because they were two partners, imagine. And I, the partner did not want to buy the shares of the other because he said it's too expensive. And I did not have one cent, but I went to see my boss and I said, how much do you want for this? And finally, I bought half of the law firm. And this is why I stayed eight years before being recruited by Steichman Elliott in Montreal to, to work in Montreal. Was there a time where you considered or were encouraged to go into politics? Yes, it is when I made the decision. What triggered the, the, my decision to move to Montreal to the big law firm? It was going very well in my law firm. I was very involved in my community, presiding the Chamber of Commerce, the regional one, and all of that, many boards. And a lot of people in the Gaspé Peninsula wanted me to run for the federal election in 1984, but I was only 25 years old and I was about to get married. So I said, I'm not going to run for the election, but for the following federal election, they came back. And they said, we would really like you to be our candidate. And, and then I took it more seriously and I had to make a decision. Should I pursue my career in politics uh, or should I pursue my career in law? Personality is not the personality of a politician. <laughs> and I decided that I will be happier in pursuing my career in law. And although my career in law was going very well in the Gaspé, I knew that I would, I would need more challenges or harder challenges because I was sworn in as a lawyer at the age of 22. By the time I had to make the decision about politics or law, I was 29. I needed new challenges because I wanted to practice all my life. And I, when I received that offer from Steichman Elliott in Montreal, I decided to move. And making the decisions that you've made, not only to move to Montreal, but also to move law firms after 23 years. How did, how did that come about? I always said when I was at Steichman Elliott that I will never leave my law firm for another law firm. I even gave an interview, I remember, in a magazine, in a legal magazine, I think in 2005 about that. And I always said, I will never move for another law firm. But... In 2010, I was hired by the Quebec government to do an inquiry commission to represent the Quebec government in an inquiry commission about the appointment process for Quebec judges because there were allegations from a former minister of justice that there were illegalities in the appointment process. So the government of Quebec asked me to be their lawyer. 
And I was essentially involved six months in this, on this inquiry commission, and we were on TV for the, the hearings. And quite often there was a headhunter calling me to say he wanted to meet with me. And I said, sir, because he said there is another Canadian law firm, they are interested in having you. And I said, he did not give me the name of the firm. And I said, sir, you are wasting your time. I will never leave my law firm for another law firm. Anyway, to make a long story short, he insisted and my, I always said my mistake was one day I was fed up and I said, listen, okay, let's have a cup of coffee together. And then it started from there and, and I moved to the other law firm because they were looking for somebody to add their litigation department and to grow the department. And I had been in that position at Steitman for 10 years. I was the head of the litigation department. The department was going very well. I was already grooming my successor. And then that opportunity to be the head of the litigation department at the other law firm came and I thought it was very interesting, challenging, and I decided to say yes and to leave. And I was there for four years until I got the phone call from the prime minister. As simple as that. <laughs> you mentioned a moment ago about how you had some professors in law school really encourage you to pursue your law and to pursue trial work. And I, I noticed from the way you said it that you hold those memories very fondly. Do you find yourself in a position similarly where you can encourage young lawyers to put them on different paths? I, I like to think that I have some influence on some of them. The young lawyers with whom I work at the two law firms and some of my clerks here, because we have our clerks for one year and the year after, after the one year, they have to leave and they they come to see me to discuss what are the different options and why, where I will see them and all of that. I like to think that I had some influence, not on all of them, but some of them. And I must say that the young lawyers, men or women with whom I work over the years, many of them, I call them my spiritual children because I did not have children myself. Some of them, believe it or not, they write to me, of course, I cannot see them that often because they don't live in Ottawa, but you create a very close relationship with those young person. And I'm pleased to think that if you ask some of them, they will tell you that I had some influence on them. I can see that you take guiding young lawyers very seriously. And I'm lucky enough to be able to do that as well from time to time. And I believe I get more out of it than the young lawyers do. Do you feel that way as well? Yes, I think it's very rewarding. And I like, when I was the leader of my litigation groups at both firms, I was seeing my role. Of course, as a leader, I was arguing a lot of cases too. I was in court all the time. But I was seeing my role. When you are a leader, it is your to give opportunities to those lower in this group to grow and to be in the limelight. For me, mentoring was essential, and I was. And when I give conferences about that, I say that it is the role of. I say to young lawyers, to help them in their career, please try to find a mentor in your law firm, man or woman, and it's not necessarily somebody who will give you all your files, the work that you have to. It may be somebody that maybe it's not the person with whom you are working more often, but somebody to whom you can go when you need advice. 
because you are going through a professional or personal difficult situation, somebody who can give you advice how to show that you can add value to the law firm. And I say also, so I say that to young lawyers, but I say also to more senior lawyers in a law firm, it is the duty of each of you to mentor young lawyers because, and I always saw my role like that. And in doing that, you know what? I was the one who was getting a lot of benefit because they were becoming better person, better lawyers, and I needed them to do my work because at the level I was, in the type of trials I was doing, I could not do that by myself only. I needed quite a good team with me. And I and for my clerks, like this morning, just before this interview, I had a meeting with my clerks, my three law clerks, to see how they are doing with their work. It's quite busy this week to see if they are fine with the allocation of work for the month of November and the month of December. And uh, so for me, it's very important to keep that relationship to have. And they, uh, the, the three of them, they know that they can always knock at my door or send me an email or give me a phone call if they have a problem. And they can always come to me for advice. And I, I feel it is part of my duty to do that. I know that there is a mandatory retirement age which you are very far away from. No, I'm getting there. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are. I had the pleasure of interviewing Justice Marie Deschamps last year, and I know that she, if I'm remembering correctly, she had left the court before her mandatory retirement, and yes. I, I see some evidence of that. What are your future plans? I would, I would like to know the answer to that question. <laughs> I still have, if I go until the mandatory age, 75, so I still have 10 years to go because I just turned 65, and I'm in my 10th year. And after 10 years at the Supreme Court, somebody can leave with all the financial benefits. So my plan, you know what, I see that one year at the time. It depends also on the events in your personal life. My companion is almost 80s, of course, but I'll see. One year at a time, my goal will be to continue to work after, not as a judge, but in another capacity, because I don't see myself completely retiring. It's not going to happen in my life, unless, unless I get sick and I don't have any other choice but, but to stop working. But I always see myself working. Although I may take life uh, more easy uh, after, let's say. Well, I hope that you do. I Just in our brief time together and preparing for this conversation, I've, I'm just really inspired by your path and what you've done for the Supreme Court, what you've done for women as well, both in Canada and the United States. You are very much a role model, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much, Justice Cote, for our conversation today. I've really appreciated it, and I wish you the very best of luck. Thank you so much, and you, it was a very interesting moment to spend with you, and I think you are too generous in your kind words, but thank you for that, and I hope that I have the opportunity to see you in person in not a so far future. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.